Thank you. Can we have the roll call? Trustee Lawrence? Here. Trustee DeVries? Here. Trustee Hernandez? Not here yet. Trustee Banerjee? Here. Trustee Jensen? Not here yet. Trustee Lujanani will be absent today. Trustee Zorthian? Here. We have a quorum. Thank you. Um, I want to welcome you all to the education session for the board um, to let you know that no action will be taken tonight. And we do have several speakers who would like to speak to the board. And just a reminder that the board um, is not in a position to respond, but they will, in fact, listen intently to what you have to say. And um, our public comment section is limited to 20 minutes with um, speakers being able to speak for three minutes each. And so I will now open the public comment section of the board. And our first speaker was uh, Donald Marhan. And after, after Donald will be Dana McPherson. Hi. Hi. So my name's Don Martin. I'm a registered nurse. I am the harm reduction coordinator at John George Hospital. Um, my colleague Eddie and I teach staff techniques to recognize um, aggressive and assaultive patients and help them de-escalate patients. We respond to emergencies and we make rounds on patients and staffs on a daily basis. <clears throat> I've been at John George since 2009. Um, our industry is um, with people, not, and with people come ideas, thoughts, personalities, emotions, and conflict. To expect any less is unrealistic. The challenges we face in healthcare um, at John George are many, and they're complicated by the stigma surrounding the mentally ill. Um, to those challenges, the uh, major changes to delivery of care of mental health instituted many years ago by nobody in this room um, have had a great impact on what happens at John George. And I want to um, talk about a few things today that will help you all better understand what I think happens at John George. When I began in 2009 at John George, PES averaged 36 visits per day in its emergency room. Um, now we average 53. At that time, PES had 37 episodes of seclusion and restraint per thousand patient visits. Um, that translates to about 36 per month. Um, currently, there are four per thousand patient visits in PES. That translates to about five per month. If currently we worked with the same practices that we had in 2009, we would have about 54 episodes of seclusion and restraint each month. So that's a drastic reduction. Um, in 2009, there were 31 workers' comp claims at John George directly related to assaultive and aggressive patients. Um, the organization spent $514,352.54 on those claims. Um, in 2015, there were eight claim, 18 claims, I'm sorry, and the organization spent about $133,505.69. So that's a huge difference. Um, in 2009, the patients' rights advocates investigated 85 claims of abuse and neglect against patients by John George, the facility, and its staff. Um, in 2015, they investigated 31 claims, so that's more than half less. Um, 
now they have a very harmonious relationship with John George and the facility. Um, and that's evidenced by the meeting they have with our um, administrator every other week. They come to our new employee orientation and they present to the employees at that orientation. They come to our front lobby every day and they spend time talking to patients and families. And they make rounds constantly at John George for countless hours every single day that they spend with our staff and our patients on the floor. Um, Additionally, this year, the California Association of Mental Health's Patient Rights Advocates denounced John George as its facility provider of the year, citing the outstanding work done by Mr. Quiskard and Judy Lin, our director of nursing. Um, because of the work done at John George in 2011, NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, which is a patient and family advocacy group, um, opened another chapter in Alameda County closely linked to our acute care services. I think that the dramatic changes that have happened at John George um, since 2010 when the new administration came are a direct result of their vision, um, their dedication to our patients, to our profession, to the staff that work in John George. And I also think those changes are directly related to the staff that provide that patient care to the patients at John George. Thank you, Donald. I appreciate it. Sure. Thank you. And the next was Dana McPherson. Good afternoon, my name is Dana McPherson. I am the East Bay Director for SEIU 10 to 1. Um, we are the union that represents approximately 3,000 AHS employees. Um, I'm here today along with many of our members, who are your employees, um, to talk about the crisis at John George. Um, we already have an ongoing epidemic of mental health in this country. Uh, we see people suffering every day, and this crisis is made worse by John George's dysfunction. The PES is dangerously overcrowded, and patient care is suffering. The facility breaks the law on RN staffing every single day. We're failing our public health and law enforcement duties, and as a result, caregivers and patients are violently assaulted every single day. They're frustrated and they're angry because they've done everything right. They've bargained safety language, they've created committees, they've set up processes, and John George administration has ignored and denied them all. Our members have demanded reforms, told their stories of suffering, and produced reports to document it. They have pled with management to take steps to act in the best interests of their patients, and no one has responded. We're here today to tell you that SEIU and our members will not go away these concerns until these concerns are addressed. You can't turn a blind eye and hope that this will go away because it won't and neither will we. But this crisis can be solved, which our members will attest to, not by studies or five-year plans or other closed internal investigations. Stop with the band-aids, solve the crisis, Resolve the vote of no confidence against the Director of Nursing. Work with the Fire Marshal, OSHA, doctors, nurses to end the illegal overcrowding and comply with safe staffing ratios. End the cycle of incompetence and chaos. Thank you. Have a good night. Thank you. Next speaker is 
Troy Nixon, and after that will be Jefferson Dorman. My name is Troy Nixon, and I'm a registered nurse at John George Psych Emergency with a total years of 27 years in psychiatry, 23 years of those at John George. I am the triage nurse, um, and I am responsible for processing individuals into our hospital, and more often than not, it has been worse than where they came from. Um, we've been talking about these issues far too long, and we're no closer to a sincere and realistic attempt by administration towards a resolution since we first raised concerns about our conditions back in November 2015. Our administration wants you to believe that there has been a recent demand for psychiatric services across our nation and we, like other psychiatric facilities, cannot keep up with the increased need due to fewer resources in the community. Well, that's simply not true. We have known about our emission growth since 2007. We have been tracking this for years and I have a graph with me that illustrates this. And according to the data, since 2007, we have seen between 12 to 1,600 more patients per year, 147 to 133 more per month, and between four to 10 more patients per day. We have actually run out of physical space on multiple occasions. Many attempts have been made to resolve this internally, but our administration appeared to not have any sense of urgency and all solutions for them are based on increasing physicians and nurses' productivity. There's nothing protecting us from being overwhelmed by the community. Family members, first responders bring individuals to us who are in psychiatric crisis. Those who have exhibited dangerous behaviors toward themselves or others and we're not allowed to treat them because we are overburdened with so many people that space and where we are going to put them take center stage. In closing, and because of a culture of retaliation, those of us who have brought these concerns to light have directly made ourselves a target, and efforts have been made by our administration to keep us quiet. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Dixon. Mr. Dorman? Hi, how you doing? My name is Jefferson Dorman. I'm a registered nurse. I work, I work at another local PES. Uh, for a couple of years, I worked at John George, and I was one of the people who did triage on a consistent basis, like Tori was just talking about. Um, I'm coming here today because I'm still talking to my friends and ex-co-workers, and they keep telling me consistently, we're at a ratio, we're at a ratio, we're at a ratio. Um, at the other facility where I work, I have generally four patients and not more than four patients in that uh, Capacity, I can offer reasonable care to my patients. I can interact with them. I can ask them what they want, what they need, what can I possibly help them with, okay? And so it's a reasonable patient load. When you go up to six, seven, eight, nine, ten people, you can't really pay attention to them. All you can do is just kind of watch them. And, you know, you, you can't uh, help but have negative outcomes from situations that you have no control over. So, you know, people have been telling me that they have problems with the ratios, problems with the ratios, over and over again, and that this is not being addressed. 
And it's true, you know, I mean, in this other county, I generally have four patients and I can address them. In John George, I did not have that privilege of being able to deliver reasonable nursing care consistently on a daily basis. Um, and I think, you know, here now, you really want to give that some thought and try to see what you can do about it because it can be better. You know, I, th I think that, you know, the, the infrastructure is here to make that better, but I'm being told by my ex-coworkers that you're not doing it, you know, and that that really needs to change. You know, you have to have those ratios in place and follow through with them on a daily basis. You know, you have to have no more than four patients per nurse so that they can deliver reasonable care, okay? And, you know, this is an emergency facility. This isn't like a floor where you can have six to eight patients um, and where people aren't going to be in a... Um, problematic way before they come in your door. You know, you have to be able to address their issues and you have to be able to give them a reasonable amount of time and you have to address the fact that this is an emergency facility where people are coming in off the street in ambulances. It's not like they're just walking in and they're calm and somewhat directable when you first get them. So I think four to one is what you really need to emphasize here and four to one is what you got to follow. That's what I'm trying to suggest. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Mr. Thurman. Rachel Oates, and after Rachel will be Ruby Sloan. My name is Rachel Otis. I'm a nurse at John George and have been an employee there for over uh, five years. Like my colleagues, I am speaking today because I am deeply committed to improving care for our patients and believe changes are urgently needed. That being said, I am fearful of retaliation as a result of standing here today. Should job actions be taken against me following the statement, I plan to return here to report them. When our new CEO, Dalakio Finley, first introduced himself to AHS staff through a series of town hall meetings last fall, he spent considerable time discussing the culture of safety and its importance for the future of this organization. He encouraged all staff to submit confidential surveys to provide information from the front lines. On January 28, 2016, I was given a document addressing my performance as John George Clinical Educator. One of the expected results within 60 days was you will not express disagreement and or concern in public meetings and or town halls. I was given this document in the midst of ongoing discussions at John George where safe staffing, overcrowding, and patient and staff injuries were on the table and where I had openly shared my thoughts and experiences in the hopes of making change. I believe that because I expressed concerns publicly, I became a target. Unfortunately, my experience is not unique. Staff members who participated in interviews with OSHA investigators reported feeling intimidated and harassed by administrators standing directly outside public areas where interviews were taking place. They reported feeling frustrated and disappointed following town hall meetings where administrators responded defensively to their concerns and offered little hope for changes to the environment of care moving forward. What I'm here to do is ask for the board's leadership in changing the tone of this discussion. Staff who are earnestly working to improve conditions for Alameda County's neediest patients deserve to be treated respectfully. Many John George staff are fearful of retaliation for speaking out, and I believe they have reason to be. 
Under these conditions, our workplace becomes less safe and employees less engaged in the vital process of trying to find real solutions. Please act to help us move towards a culture of safety where the resources of this organization can be used to fix these problems instead of covering them up. Thank you, Ms. Oates. Ruby Sloan. Good evening. My name is Ruby Sloan, and I've been working at John George for 25 years. Uh, I'm testifying today because despite of my fear of reprisal, because I believe that our patients are uh, at severe risk. And I know from personal experience, from having two um, head injuries, that um, it's a lot of violence, assaults on patients and staff. And it happens often. Uh, if anything happens to my job because of my testimony tonight, I will be coming to all of you to assist me. We are demanding that the Board of Trustees require John George to cap the census, the capacity of the PES at 50 patients. That room cannot reasonably hold any more patients. We have patients in chairs, on floors, uh, on mats who are psychotic and violent, squeezed in with depressed, suicidal, and it's a powder keg and it does explode often. We are seeing significantly more patients uh, 8,400 more annually than we were a decade ago, and our current model isn't working. 80% of our patients come from hospitals, emergency, other hospital emergency rooms. Um, the vast majority of our patients come from the 12 other hospitals in Alameda who do not have a psych ward. The simple solution to hold these patients in, in the other ER rooms from which they are originated until we have capacity for PES. This is, the patient's, this is in the patient's best interest. They won't be in an overcrowded, dangerous space. Many other counties already do this. It's the humane thing to do. You don't need studies about opening new facilities, clinics in five years. We need stop putting a Band-Aid on what we need because we are, we're not going to make it. We need something to happen now. So listen to us, you know, and stop the intimidation from the managers and the supervisors. We need you to listen to what we're saying to you. We're not here for just to make you know, you embarrassed. We care about our jobs. We care about our patients. I've been doing this for 25 years. You know, just listen to what we have to say. Thank you. Uh, were there any, we have a couple more minutes. Are, were there any other speakers, Susanna? Okay. Okay, we can fit in one more. It's B.J. Wilson. All right, B.J. 
And BJ, before you speak, I want to let the rest of the group know that after our board session, uh, our, our meeting, we do have another public open session that those of you who wanted an opportunity to talk that didn't get to can, in fact, wait, and we can hear you after the board has their meeting. Uh, so please, go ahead. Thank you, and thank you for allowing me to speak right now. My name is B.J. Wilson. I am a registered nurse, and I've been working for AHS for about ooh, almost 30 years. I've been a nurse for about 35 years. Um, what I'm here to talk about tonight is communication and working together as a team. I'm on a lot of different committees, and one of my main things that I always try to end with is communication. Because without communication, it's hard for somebody to understand what it is you want them to do. You can say, I want you to bake this cake, and you can put all the stuff there to bake that cake. But if you don't show that person the instructions and how to do it and how to put that cake together, it depends on what kind of cake you want to make. Because it's a difference when you make a angel food cake and if you make a pound cake. If you don't tell that person what an angel food cake, you need to fold in the egg white, you're going to get rubber. So you need to not just put it there. You need to show them how to do it and then follow through with it afterwards. Because it's a whole line of defense. And when somebody who has more experience or maybe who has done something longer than you tries to assist you, it doesn't necessarily mean they want your job. It just may mean that that individual wants to help you become the better you that you can be. So we need to talk to each other. I know some people who live in the same house. They're not talking anymore. <laughs> they're emailing. They're texting. And they're calling on the phone. And they're in the same house. There used to be a time I went to the store and I had a conversation with that person in the store. Now when I hear somebody talking and I turn around to say something, they've got something in their ear or they're on the phone. They're not talking to me. We're dealing with people we're not dealing with inanimate objects. We need to talk. We need to talk to each other. And we need to try to do different things. Because one minute this may work, but this person may come in and it's not going to work for them. So it's not a one fixed thing. You have to do it individualized. It has to be tailored. And everybody needs to work together. We have been struggling a long time. I've been here longer than a lot of these people have. And I've been through about four or five different administrations, and I'm still saying the same thing, and I'm not going to stop until somebody pays attention. And thank you. Thank you, Ms. Wilson. That closes our public comment section, um, and the board can move on to their agenda. And uh, we are discussing tonight best practices in primary care and discussing the whole area of behavioral science uh, and services. Del Vecchio, can I turn it over to you? Uh, sure. 
Processing on. Uh, yeah. So, good evening, trustees. Uh, uh, good to see you all again, as usual. Um, per the education uh, um, request that we and uh, schedule we agreed on for a while, and actually I think this one uh, was uh, called out in our last education meeting. Um, we're bringing before you. Um, um, an education on uh, specifically integrating primary care and behavioral health. Um, thank you. So uh, I will turn it over uh, to our uh, leaders in, in behavioral health and uh, uh, ambulatory care, actually, uh, Guy Kiscott and, and Dr. Joe Walker to uh, walk us through today's presentation. Sorry. Gentlemen. Thank you, Dale Vecchio. Thank you for the opportunity. We can start the slides. Mm -hmm. ah. right here. Uh, thank you. Which one? This one right here. There you go. So we're going to be speaking with you this evening about the importance of integrating behavioral health and primary care. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the concept of integrating those two services, um, say a little bit about what's the compelling reasons for actually entertaining the, the notion of doing that, and then give you a couple practical examples about what it, what it can actually look like when it's been accomplished. We're going to start by defining behavioral health. It's a term that gets used an awful lot. came about, I think, primarily in the 80s, but I'm, I'm not sure that there's necessarily a shared definition of what it is. So just to clarify at the outset, behavioral health is really an umbrella term that's used to address really any care or interventions that are geared to change behaviors that have a negative impact on your health. Now, that may include mental health disorders, substance abuse disorders, and what's listed there is stress-linked physical symptoms. This, By that, that's a lifestyle style choice that may exacerbate a physical a medical problem that you have, excessive caffeine consumption in the context of hypertension, that sort of thing. So that's what the, the stress-linked physical symptoms <coughs> refers to. So how much of an issue is, let's look at the mental health disorder component. This is a slide that talks about the prevalence, or in other words, the number of people newly diagnosed within a year uh, with a mental health disorder. Uh, as you can see, the overall prevalence is about 18%, roughly, nationally. And then there's a breakdown uh, that you see on the, on the remainder of the slide. A slightly higher incidence for women than men um, begins to drop off around age 50. An interesting point for everyone who has seen this slide is the comment that the highest incidence appears to be with those individuals who self-identify as being a part of two or more races. So it's just, an, I'm not sure what to make of that, but just an interesting observation in terms of a, a higher prevalence of a diagnosis of a mental disorder. Now you'll notice some of our statistics are somewhat variable. The reason for that is we, we drew on several different studies to put this together. And so the, the number should be looked at as really indicating trends or general directions. A 47% on one slide and a 52 on the other is not substantially different. So those variations you may notice because our source material is, is somewhat varied. So of all the people who have a mental health disorder, 67% of, of those people don't get any sort of behavioral health treatment at all. If you look at the people that primary care docs, for those that are fortunate enough to have a referral system and an ability to refer, when a, a primary care doc identifies the need for specialty intervention, makes the referral almost up to 50% of the time, the first appointment's never made. So we're talking about some pretty substantial interruptions in what would be an, a smooth flow of identification of problems and, and beginning of treatment. Yes? If, if the 67 who have behavioral health disorder that do not get treatment, how do you know that they have behavioral health disorders? Well, in the same way that the prevalence 
data was collected on the, on the previous slide. So that's a large catchment area study. So what they do is look at a large catchment area study, how many people meet diagnostic criteria in that study for a, for a behavioral health disorder, and then look at that same group a year later and see how many actually got treatment. And 67% did not. So the, um, the, the diagnosis of a behavioral health condition could happen in a primary care setting or another setting, and you're looking back to see, was that diagnosis actually treated by a specialist? Oh, I see, I see, setting? I see. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Sorry. No, no, it's okay. Can I, I mean, I want this to be an interactive Absolutely. session. So I do want to encourage the board that this just isn't a presentation, but rather a learning experience for us. So. I absolutely welcome that. Okay, so that thank would, you. That would be fun. Okay, thank you. A challenge for the primary care docs, as I had mentioned, if you're one of the fortunate ones in a system that knows where you can refer, um, you're in the you're in the one third category because two thirds of our primary care docs actually don't have a place to refer patients for behavioral health care. Now, there are several reasons for that. One is just a shortage of mental health care providers, and that's a, actually a, a growing national trend. Another would be health plan barriers, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes the development of the carve-out structure around managed care that has separated behavioral health from other aspects of medical care, or just a plain lack of or inadequacy of coverage. Again, in, in sort of large studies, uh, looking at primary care patients in general, roughly 50% of those who do meet criteria in external studies are not diagnosed in the primary care setting. And if for this large group of people that we're talking about who don't get treatment, only about 20 to 20 to 40 percent are going to get substantially better over a six-month period of time without any, any assistance. So we're really looking at something that can go from being an acute and treatable illness moves into a chronic phase, which actually not only impacts the patient's quality of life, but actually has treatment implications as well. It's harder to treat an untreated depression that's been in place for years than it is one that's newly, newly onset. Something changes in terms of the physiology and response to treatment. Let Joe, me interject something. Sorry. Let me interject something here. As Dr. Walker said earlier, the challenge with behavioral health statistics is it has to pull from so many different sources. And that's, that's just, this plagues our field. So there isn't a, a singular uh, database that folks can go to to get what we would consider very robust numbers. So these numbers come from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration in, in the United States. They come from Lancet publications in England where there's a lot of good uh, population studies around mental illness. Some of our best studies are coming out of Australia and New Zealand. Uh, so you'll see the references down below in, in the, I think the two-point font uh, are real important uh, that these are, these are studies are coming from across the United States and frankly across the world. Okay. Are the studies addressing primarily adults or are there anything related to, um, to children? And in part because it seems to me that the preventive notion of getting to these symptoms early in one's life would make a significant difference later as an adult. So are these adult statistics? Only. Yes, these are adult statistics only at this point. However, there are statistics and lots of studies for children and adolescents. They're not quite as what I would consider robust in children under the age of 12. Uh, and they get the, the numbers get a little more uh, consistent between the ages of about 13 and 18. And once we move into the adult world, then the numbers get, uh, we start to see them banding and we can start making assumptions about them. I'm not sure I've ever seen a study either that blended children and adults, so you rarely see the, that data 
meld with each other. And even increasingly, we see geriatric populations separated out so that we're looking at a more like population, just children and adults, I mean children and adolescents, adults, and then geriatric. Yes? Just, I was going to ask about the last bullet point again, the, the only 20 to 40 percent of what patients again, the ones that are in that 50 percent yes. that don't get picked up by their primary care docs? That's right. Okay. And the point I made earlier that you asked me to repeat on a little bit was that if I see a patient who's had an onset of symptoms for the last six weeks, their probability of a positive response to a pharmacologic intervention is substantially higher than if I'm seeing a patient who's had those symptoms for several years. So that's what I'm saying. Earlier intervention actually has an impact not only on quality of life, but also on, on the effect of the treatment. Would you uh, say, even though it's not... Uh, specifically brought out in, in this discussion, would you agree that the um, likelihood of both being diagnosed or the incidence as well as the availability of treatment have economic um, considerations for certain populations are less likely, more likely to be diagnosed and less likely to receive treatment? Well, we do have some slides coming in just a few minutes that actually talk about the financial impact. Um, the impact. But I mean in terms of the the uh, diagnosis. Or In terms of the disparity with regard to access to getting yeah. diagnosed? Yeah, to, yeah, and the incidence, the actual incidence of being, of having a mental health condition, is that related to economic? Socioeconomic status? Yeah. There, we, it, yes, there is a correlation there, and some, that's one of the slides that we, we didn't include that perhaps we could, we could provide for you, which is a breakdown just like the prevalence slide that I showed you for age groups. There's, there's similar breakdown with regard to economic status. And the Kaiser Family Foundation just released just uh, a couple weeks ago uh, a great study. It's about 45 pages long, which goes into, that, uh, in, into those details. Professor Jensen. Thank you. And my follow-up question would be, um, have we looked at the rate of mental illness in Alameda County and in particular what kinds of um, presenting con conditions we're seeing the most of? Mm. So is there any of that data? Our data is, is more national, national. Uh, in okay. terms of its reference. Okay. So I don't believe we have anything specific Not to Alameda specific County. Alameda County. Mm -hmm. Okay, this slide, let me, let me explain what the entire circle is. This, this entire circle is the practice of a given primary care doctor. So the way this breaks down is from the diagnoses that are made by that primary care doctor, let's, if I can read very well up there, respiratory disease is about 8% of those diagnoses, cardiovascular disease, 22%. Uh, so I'll bring your attention over to the neuropsychiatric disorders, which represents about 28% of the diagnoses that are made in a primary care setting. Now, neuropsychiatric disorders include both what we would consider behavioral health challenges, uh, such as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, but also includes some things that are neurologic and etiology, such as epilepsy and other, other um, neurologic disorders. So if we pull out the 6% that's related to the more purely physical components, it still leaves about uh, about 22% of the diagnoses a primary care doctor makes are behavioral health related. And then you just said that 50% of those aren't diagnosed anyway, so... So that right. suggests there's some being missed, right? <laughs> right. And that the, what 50% of those that get referred don't get a first appointment. So I'm glad, yeah, this, all of this fits together in a way that's not, uh, doesn't, says we have some real challenges. Should yeah. I back up? And, and that it exists with all these other exists. 
conditions as well, right. where it's not the primary, but it might be a secondary depression, anxiety, all of those exist with all of the other uh, portions of the pie as well. And as a matter of fact, we have a slide just in a minute that's going to talk about how does the comorbidity of a, of a behavioral health disorder and a, and a chronic medical condition, how does it affect things? Can you um, just define the unipolar? I'm suspecting that's depression or um, other affective type disorders. Unipolar is basically major depressive disorder. So what does it cost, the fact that we have all of these behavioral health disorders that are not being addressed? If you look at individuals that have both chronic and acute medical conditions, add to that population uh, a substance abuse history and or a behavioral health issue, the cost of taking care of that individual with, with a combined mental health and psychiatric disorder, uh, I'm sorry, mental health and, and medical disorder is roughly two to three times what it would be for an individual who had just one of those disorders. Putting it and we were talking about disability days and, and costs. Behavioral health accounts for roughly half of the disability days nationally. Uh, uh, another way of putting it, if you have a chronic medical condition and you pair it with a behavioral health condition, the cost is going to be roughly 46% more than if you have just a chronic medical condition. In the slide that follows, I'm going to look at some particular medical conditions, comorbid with depression, and give you some examples of how it's affecting the cost. But just one, another statistic about the top five conditions driving overall health care costs. You notice top of the list is depression, uh, and number five, anxiety. So two out of five of the, of the biggest cost drivers are behavioral health in nature. And if you take a look at that list of five as well, many times you will see a comorbidity among that very list. Folks who uh, experience back and neck pain, and that can be a psychosomatic condition of an underlying anxiety disorder or depression. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Other questions? Okay. So this is the slide I was referring to that, that looks directly at four specific physical conditions, heart disease, high blood pressure, uh, asthma. asthma, and diabetes. So this, the lighter color, the green, and then the darker blue um, is with depression and without depression. So as you can see, as you add depression to the mix, it increases substantially, close to that 46% that the previous slide indicated, in the cost of that care. Um, so these, these are charges that payers of whatever source, whether government, individual, commercial, whatever, are paying. Uh, and it's, it's a substantial amount of money. Somewhere running, it's speculated to be somewhere between 130 and $350 billion that are spent annually on these comorbid conditions. And again, around the, the disability days, there's a cost annually of roughly $17 billion based on just the behavioral health-driven disability days. So this is a slide that talks about, again, this, the large circle, the red and green circle, is the circle of everyone who has a psychiatric condition, has a, has a mental health disorder. So we've already established 59% get no treatment at all. So of the remaining 41%, more than half of those individuals get whatever treatment they do get in their general medical setting. Less than half actually end up seeing uh, a health, mental health professional. Okay. All right, historically, I mean, that begs the question, why? What, uh, what's happened to create the situation? I, I've, been, uh, I've been in behavioral health care since the uh, late 1970s, for a long, long time. And, uh, and I grew up in the, what I would call the first wave of capitation and managed care. And what we found real quickly is, and what exists today is a bifurcation, if not a, a 
trifurcation to, to invent a word of payer sources and payer and funding streams. Typically what happened was the medical group or the medical insurer, whoever that may be, uh, takes care of the physical health problems and then subcontracts out care for the mental health because it is a, it is a specialty service. Uh, and that created, uh, that created a, a, a siloed system with separate authorization processes, separate payment streams, separate specialties, specialists working within those fields, and rarely did they meet. Uh, a, a, an anecdote uh, that, I, that I bring to the table is that I used to work for a uh, uh, large, a very large uh, subcontracted car mental health carve-out. And when we brought to the health care insurers, the physical health care insurers' attention, that many people that were coming to uh, their, their hospitals with orthopedic problems had a high incidence of depression, the health care insurer said, that's not our concern. That's the concern of the behavioral health folks and where there was an opportunity to save big dollars and possibly do some cross-pollination of information that didn't occur. So in essence, there was, there, the, the system grew up because of its funding with a forced choice between, as you can see here, two kinds of problems, clinicians, clinics, treatments, insurances. And that's where that's the phrase we use uh, called carve out occurred. It occurred back in the late 80s where we carved out mental health care from medical health care. And uh, some insurers uh, started, to, started to get creative and carve that back in. A lot of this was cost-driven. If they brought back in the management of behavioral health care dollars, they found that they could save, save money and be a little more efficient. But what I've discovered, and it was very evident in the industry, is that even though a carve-in occurs with some insurers, that carve-in division is a separate division. And there are firewalls even within that health care insurer. Next slide, please. Yes. So what does behavioral health integration really mean? Uh, I used to work for Adventist Health, and they used to, uh, and they pride themselves on what they call whole person care because they had spiritual, mental, and physical health care. However, it was also described to me that those were, those were silos within their system, and each system was separate. And I was also told that on top of each silo was a gun turret, so be very careful. Um, so just because the services exist in a system doesn't mean that they're integrating. So integration is where care exists and results when a practice team gets together. Who is in that practice team? Well, in an integration model, it would be the primary care team and behavioral health clinicians. And they would work at the same site together in the treatment team to develop a treatment approach for that patient which encompasses not just the medical nor just the behavioral health care concerns but treat them together and create a treatment plan that encompasses all of that at the same time. So it really puts the patient at the center and is what I would call true whole person care. Next slide. So however there is a continuum, and there's more models than this, but these are the, these are the three that, we, uh, that we're speaking to tonight. There's a continuum where these types of services exist within a system. There's what we call, the, what, what, uh, what uh, authors call a coordinated care model, which is what many of us are used to, where you do receive medical treatment, let's say in a primary care environment, and you would get a referral to, a coordinated referral to a behavioral health clinician. You saw, some you saw from previous slides how effective that 
that are ineffective that is. Uh, still, it's a, it's, the, it's a practice that still exists today and we still talk about a coordinated care model. In the middle of this continuum of integrate, integrated care would be what we call a co-located care model. And that's where on site are both behavioral health clinicians and primary care clinicians. Unfortunately and frequently what we find on the same site, although they're co-located, they're offering separate clinics on the same site. We have a, what I would consider a, 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 a bit of an advanced co-located care model on our Eastmont, Newark, Hayward, and Highland campuses where we've co-located psychologists and psychiatrists. The intent of that model was not just to create a parallel psychiatric clinic or behavioral health clinic with primary care, but to provide that service and more frequently to provide a consultation model where the psychiatrist and the primary care physician speak with one another about the care of the patient wherever that patient may hit, whether it's that patient's coming to the psychiatrist or to the primary care physician. Do you want to say anything else on that? Well, Jeff? just that that's a much more inter actually integrated model. When the two, two clinicians actually sit down and have a conversation, that's, that begins to approximate what real integration looks like. Which goes to the far end of the spectrum right now, and that's the true integrated model, and that's where the behavioral cl health clinician is actually a functioning member of the primary care team. That clinician can be a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a social worker. Uh, those, are the, those are the most common uh, clinicians that we see on these types of teams. In some non-publicly, non-FQHC environments, we'll see marriage family therapists and some uh, behavioral health extenders, such as nurse practitioners and, and behavioral health nurse practitioners working in this environment as well. Funding prevents marriage family therapists who have a similar license to LCSWs from uh, getting reimbursement in an FQHC, a federally qualified health center, which is what we have in our, in our system. So we can't employ marriage family therapists, even though they're licensed to practice independently and they, are, and they have a master's degree as a, as a clinical social worker would. And that's federal, federal funding, antiquated federal funding uh, rules. So, we have, we have an opportunity, and this is what really excites me. I didn't know if I'd see it in my career, uh, but with the 1115 waiver, uh, and that is California's uh, application to the federal government to deliver Medicaid services uh, uh, in, a, in a bit different manner, uh, the state has come back to, uh, to the public safety net hospitals and said, uh, Here's what we want to do. We want to incent the health systems to integrate behavioral health and primary care, to put dollars behind an integrated model. And this, to me, is was a huge step forward. Uh, finally, we have a funder, major funder in federal dollars, who's uh, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, who are saying we want we recognize the value and the power of integrating models. So we want to we want to uh, fund those kinds of projects. So in three of the ten waiver projects, the Prime projects that we are using, and Prime stands for Public Hospital Redesign and Incentives in Medi-Cal, a very long phrase for a for a shorter acronym. But what we're, what we're doing in Prime, three of the ten projects call for an integration of behavioral health in primary care. And behavioral health as broadly defined as psychiatric as well as substance abuse services. So we're in the middle of designing those delivery systems now here in Alameda Health System. So it's a very, it's a very forward thinking and a phenomenal opportunity for our health system. 
So where is it happening? That's the next question Joe and I asked, is that uh, is this occurring elsewhere or do we have to reinvent the wheel? And there is a map that was, that was um, uh, developed by the, and I can't recall, Jesse Lawrence, what AHRQ stands for? Thank you very much. I uh, try to get those acronyms out of the way. Yeah, well, I've been watching. You said about three that you have to explain. Okay, all right. I, I'm sure you'll tell me what those are later. So this is where integration is happening, and most frequently it's in public health settings uh, where, we're, where we're ahead of the curve. It's not what, what Joe and I would call, Dr. Walker and I would call full integration. In most of the, many of the models you see here where each pinpoint is, we're seeing co-location or we're seeing coordinated care. But AHRQ, the... Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm tossing it to you. <laughs> uh, they're they're um, they're describing integration uh, across the continuum as we've uh, the integration continuum as we've previously expressed. And a part of why you see so many places on there is it's been an ongoing effort for a number of years. So it's not as if the idea of integrated care is brand new. Folks have been trying to work out what's the best practice integrated care for quite some time. So that's why you see it spread all over the country and they, they may well be doing it quite differently each from the other. There's not a clearly identified best practice yet. When you go to the California, uh, California map and if I were to go visit something, what, where, hmm. have we seen those? I mean, what, what's the experience in our, in looking at those? I mean, are they models that we can work with? Not what I would consider best in class. In fact, one of the pinpoints there is our own health system. It's behavioral health care services here in Alameda County. Uh, and, and we know that that's not a fully integrated model at this point. So AHRQ is using the broadest uh, definition of the term integration. There are some best practice models on the East Coast that we can learn from. We're going to show you a couple here. Okay. One is, and, and Dr. Walker, I'll ask you to help me with this. One is uh, the uh, Cherokee Health Systems in Tennessee. And given that you're a Tennessee gentleman, uh, <laughs> I'll have you uh, kick this one off. You'll see here, though, there's, there's, two, there's two locations. One is the primary care practice itself, and the other is where they make a decision to refer out to a specialty, specialty mental health services. And DBT in that slide, Trustee Lawrence, stands for Dialectical Behavior Therapy, which is considered a specialty type of therapy for folks with, uh, with uh, certain diagnoses. So anything yeah, else to say? Not a great deal to add. I mean, the part to look at is, is the specialty services are outside of the integrated model. So that part carries over to the model that we'll be talking about shortly as well. But, but I mean, you do have the little box inside. Yes. So, so explain, if you could, in this system, explain to me what happens when a patient walks in the door. So let's go to the next slide to see that. This is probably a, this is where yeah, this one confused me. Yeah, this is a, this is a better example of what, what uh, Dr. Walker and I would call an integrated care model. Joey, let's walk, can you walk through this one? Well, first let me say that the way this slide varies from what we're trying to describe is you see the other behavioral health clinicians is in additional clinic resources. We would put that above that dotted line in the model that we were proposing here. That's the only difference. And so, yes. So, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Do you follow? Where's the front door here? Like, I don't, where's the arrow begin? <laughs> and where's the end of the maze? The patient walks into the PCP office. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So in, in the collaborative team approach that you are, uh, you know, that you'll be talking about, 
if you're thinking about models, not just today, but as you think about doing it, the ones where you know we look at the wraparound services in the community as well as much as like the clinic-based kind mm -hmm. of integration mm -hmm. that yes. happens, those um, examples would be really good for us to know from where where the primary care is really being actively like the the prevention part of it of of getting to these patients before they actually enter the clinic. Um, where are those models happening? Yeah, and, and you bring up a, there's a couple of issues embedded in your in your comment there. One is is accessing wraparound services uh, as a referral from a primary care clinic. And that's, that would be uh, a, a, a referral model. Uh, here's an example. A patient walks into the primary care physician, and we know that what drives their challenge with taking their psychiatric medication and also any, any support for their physical health problems is a housing issue mm -hmm. and that they might need supportive housing. That's where we would need a strong connection with you know, Dr. Ratner's work with uh, with the county with right. behavioral health care services, and that and that's where that would be an outside resource that we would have to make a connection to and have some sort of tracking mechanism, and that's what we're building in uh, given an opportunity with the 1115 waiver. Okay, mm -hmm. and now where we are co-located is the onus of referring to you on the on the primary. So where currently in Alameda in the Highland or other campuses where we are co-located with mm -hmm. primary care. So folks are coming through the door, some of them are coming through the mental health services, but most are coming through the primary care, care and mm -hmm. then they are, that's how they get referred to you. So the doctors are talking, as you said, it's right. semi-integrated, yes. mm -hmm. but it's still the onus is on the primary care doctors to send them to you. It's now. a little more spread out than that, and you're closer to the, the ambulatory setting than I, but patients are giving screening exams prior to actually even meeting with the PCP. And so there may be staff on the team that have, have identified the need for a behavioral health intervention even prior to the patients being seen by the PCP. So again, it's a part of that team concept that the, the primary care doc may may already have it recognized for him or her before he, before they have access to the patient. But how did somebody know to give the person a screening? Um, um, how did that first interaction take place if well, the patient doesn't present themselves? We routinely screen, but with certain exams. Like we, we screen for depression for every patient that comes in. Who's, I mean, where? Who's we? Patient is arrives in the clinic is actually handed a form that they are asked to fill out okay. prior to being seen by the clinician, and that form asks a series. Of, it's a standardized questionnaire that that has been measured against various responses. And so, if you get a certain number or a certain cumulative collection of symptoms, then you go down a different path. And we're we're building that into the electronic record uh, as part of the waiver activities. There's a uh, there's a requirement in that project to standardize that screening tool so it's less homegrown for a lot of clinics. The other screening tool that's critical in the waiver activities is a substance abuse screening. So we're, we're required to build all of those into the record and then do follow-up treatment. In fact, in substance abuse, it's not just the screening, but it's a brief intervention, and then it's a referral, and then ongoing treatment. And we have to make those connections. But you notice in this model, the consulting psychiatrist meets primarily or, or at least significantly with the primary care doc just as much as with, a, with an individual patient. So it's really intended to sort of spread out the knowledge, sort of, sort of empower more people to, to be able to intervene in these situations. 
Then how much um, influence or involvement, once that, that, that referral takes place, will the behavioral health care clinician actually have a input? And, and do we know that the primary care physician will work together, or does the behavioral health clinician have the ability to, to make another referral to, um, to, for, for medication or make a referral to a, actually for substance abuse to um, rehabilitation or something like that? Do they have that, that ability? They do. If you notice the, the dotted line that goes from consulting psychiatrists all the way around and back down to, to specialty services. So if a patient is referred to the, to the mental health clinician, it's determined whether is this, does, is this illness at a level that can be treated in a primary care setting or does it really exceed the capacities, the realistic capacities of a primary care clinic, at which point that patient can be referred to specialty services, whereas, which is where we would engage with BHCS locally. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. uh, behavioral health care services. BHCS, that's correct. The county. The county. The county. That's right. All right. All right. So, can I ask a question, though, about how we might uh, sort out where to refer patients? So, I'm looking at the data available for Alameda County, and this is for 2014. It's from the county health rankings, okay? Mm -hmm. Everybody can see that it's publicly available and apparently Alameda County has 287.6 a half of a psychologist I guess uh, 287.6 mental health care providers per 100,000 residents now that includes psychiatrists psychologists clinical social workers counselors that all specialize in mental health so so I'm imagining the percent of psychiatrists is probably the smallest one, and then everyone else, you know, we've got. How do we decide in our clinics to make the referrals to the resources available? Because this is, if I believe this, this is telling me that in Alameda County, compared to California as a whole, we're better. Mm -hmm. California as a whole has only 157 mental health providers mm -hmm. per 100,000. Mm -hmm. That's probably because Fresno has very few and Stanislaus has very few. But, but that's really dramatic for us. Mm -hmm. I mean, that tells me that the resources are there, but how are we referring people? <laughs> While the resources are there, never enough. Yeah, as as uh, folks are seeking more and more treatment, and the stigma is beginning to even fade a little, uh, it's uh, we're still fighting it. Uh, the 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 initial question: How do we make the decision to refer? Uh, a significant uh, piece of that is the clinical the clinical acuity of the patient. If they're at a certain level of acuity, a lower level, then that we that is by definition we can treat them in a primary care setting, and we feel that there's there's a good opportunity for them to recover and manage the, manage their illness. Then that's where we'll treat treat them. It, with folks that are that are more acute, then we we are. You know, we partner with BHCS, Behavioral Health Care Services of the county, county mental health, and refer them to specialty teams. And the county has all sorts of services available. Again, never enough. But many of these teams are, are service teams specializing in, in let's say, the uh, geriatric population or, uh, or a population that's primarily Spanish-speaking or a transitional age youth, uh, many times who are undertreated as well, between the ages of 16 to 25. So there's, there's a lot of resources. Um, and we're just not all linked well together yet. 
but with uh, but there's a lot of in, in, uh, a lot of meetings intent and design to pull those services together, and we're actually seeing some of that occur. And so, just just a little follow up to sure. that would be um, like all kinds of chronic disease. Um, do you have a sense of how many in our population are the repeat visitors to our facilities, the chronic, you know, um, uh, sort of the high utilizers that are coming into our clinics to, mm -hmm. to get this kind of care? Because I bet people start on the medication, they get better, and then they stop taking it, and then they're back there six months mm -hmm. later. Right. Yeah. Those those numbers are being crunched right now as oh, we speak okay. uh, with the Alameda Alliance. <laughs> we asked uh, Behavioral Health Care Services uh, for their assistance in identifying uh, our folks who uh, are familiar faces to us in psychiatric emergency services. Okay. And uh, we defined that as folks seeing coming to uh, psychiatric emergency services, PES, uh, at least four times in the past rolling 12 months. And they identified... Yeah, and they identified about 250 folks oh, okay. who do that. If I can just make a couple of comments about you, about your yeah. questions, too. In addition to acuity, you can also develop protocols that help to point a patient in the right direction. As an example, let's say someone meets criteria for a major depressive disorder. It's entirely reasonable to expect that a primary care doc would try at least one or two mm -hmm. of the antidepressants before making the referral. Mm -hmm. If there's been at least two failed trials, then it makes sense to engage the expert. So we try to follow some protocols, too, rather than making just a, a, an individual decision on a case-by-case -case basis. And around Alameda County's allocation of monies, in my experience, Alameda County has some of the most elaborated services I've ever seen for the persistent and severely mentally ill. If you have very mild uh, conditions, you will you probably have access to a primary care doc. If you're in the middle, you have a challenge because there are just not that many services available for those folks who are between between moderate and severe. So that's a part of what we're trying to do is broaden the, the span of people that can be taken care of in the primary care setting from just mild to halfway through moderate. So, And just to make note, there are a lot more medications and that are friendly to use for primary care docs than there used to be. That's because true. the other things we used to give people were very scary. Um, and so that it's, it's a different world. It is. Days. It's very true. There's a there's a uh, an acronym that you'll be seeing a lot of as we move towards our waiver activities and our our prime projects and that's PCMH it stands for patient centered medical home. It's a concept that's been uh, written about for several decades now. The idea being is that all the services are located in one place for the patient and they really are the center of the care delivery system. So the PCMH model. In, has, has always included behavioral health. So we're moving towards a patient-centered medical home model, uh, which has an integrated behavioral health, and you can see the six reasons why it should be. Not just because it's been written about and that is the, that's the best practice of the day, but as you can see, number one, there is a high prevalence of behavioral health problems in primary care. We, we made the case earlier. Uh, and number two, you've seen the high burden of behavioral health and primary care. It's there and often untreated, undiagnosed, or uh, when a referral is made, not followed up on. And then the cost. And uh, we can lower those costs 
if the earlier we intervene with patients that have a behavioral health problem, that not only does that make common sense, but lots have been written in the literature about early intervention in healthcare and, and uh, illnesses. Uh, there's better health, health outcomes and improved satisfaction. The real good part about this, and this is why I love this slide, it hits the triple aim. It improves patient experience, it reduces costs, and it, and it, uh, and it uh, addresses population health. Moving it just, on. It yeah. just, it, it, looking at this and, and throughout your discussion, it just, it, it, it seems logical that if someone is coming into um, one of our facilities, one of our clinics, and, and then is either at risk or becomes, is diagnosed with a chronic condition or mm -hmm. with some even life-threatening condition, then a, a, a mental health condition might follow because of the diagnosis or, or they might be Absolutely. at a higher risk of of developing a depression, certain yes. depression. There are there are prevalent size slides and, and that we didn't put in this uh, slide deck where when you have uh, cancer, for example, the incidence rate of depression and cancer or post-surgical delirium uh, or depression are, are, are very high. So you're right, medical, medical issues can drive behavioral health presentations and behavioral health, uh, exacerbate behavioral health uh, diagnoses. And cardiac disease is a, a prime example Absolutely. of that. The incidence of depression after a heart attack is enormously high. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> earlier you mentioned both substance abuse and also um, uh, physical stress. Uh, lifestyle things. Right? Lifestyle things, yeah. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious because I, I just thought about it again with population health on here as far as this integrated model. I mean, do we have a breakdown of, I mean, you have the severe, as you said, we do a great job, you have moderate, you know, doctors can prescribe things at the primary care level, the middle areas, but, but I'm really curious about that, that prevention level with, with mm. somebody who, you know, a young person who's starting to smoke or drinking a little too much or, you know, I mean, uh, is that all integrated into here and is that like what, where's that being screened uh, and how and, and what percentage of the, of the population that needs behavioral health is that uh, yeah well what we, what we haven't done and we had a, a large debate about this and that's at what you know where where does behavioral health start and lifestyle coaching and and prevention you know where's where's the line there uh, where we where we landed and just through agreement basically is that if we're going to talk about behavioral health, we need to talk about those things that are traditionally defined as behavioral health. And then, then we get into things like obesity prevention, which has a high depression rate as well uh, as, a separate, as a separate issue. Uh, however, if we integrate this into a primary care, a, a patient-centered medical home, both issues will be addressed, maybe not by the same clinician, or maybe depending upon how the patient presents. Uh, that Joe and I have had a lot of discussions about, uh, you know, the patient walking in the door. Who's the who's the point person in that patient-centered medical home? And and uh, I would pos I would postulate that the the point person should be where the primary uh, what the primary issue is for the patient. So if the patient is coming in depressed but also has back pain, then it might be that the behavioral health care provider is the point person for that behavior for that that care team. If the person comes in as early onset uh, diabetes, then it might be that the primary care physician is the is the uh, principal uh, um, point person for the care team. And, this and the same thing there is that you know when we're talking about uh, you know early issues with teenagers or with adults, that we see a prevention path is really the best way to go. Then maybe it's a healthcare coach 
that is the best point person. But this integrated model avoids so many of the problems that get in the way. For example, if a primary care doc says, I want you to go and see a psychiatrist in order to obtain the treatment, as opposed to, I'll have a conversation with my psychiatrist on my team and provide you with a recommendation. Mm -hmm. That patient doesn't have to walk into a psychiatric mm -hmm. clinic, doesn't have to acknowledge to themselves that they have a psychiatric disorder, and still has access to the expertise. So that integrated model allows a lot of face saving for folks that may have a problem with acknowledging the nature of the problems they're having. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Still an adult-centered. Um, well, we were just talking that. about uh, an adult for, model, but for we the, can have a kid's model. But for, for the waiver, actually, uh, uh, for our prime application uh, and this particular uh, element of the integration, it is actually going to be applied both in the adult and the pediatric clinic. Uh, here and so that's the application uh, that we put forth uh, to test it out in our adult and pediatric primary care clinics. Um, uh, so I wanted to say that part and then to Joe's other part that uh, another part of the application is certainly the ability to have the uh, the mental health um, uh, provider or behavioral health uh, provider as a part of the team and, and helping in that way um, to directly provide the services. Another part is uh, continuous education for the other members of the team so that there's a goal to have everyone operating at the top of his or her licensure uh, so that there will be the ability um, to uh, sort of aggregate uh, on different tiers what a provider is actually capable, competent to do uh, to support a patient before you need to engage uh, the more probably rare, uh, uh, more sparse and highly uh, um, um, specialized providers to, to provide the, the more, more, more discrete treatments. Most of our prime efforts uh, and projects that integrate behavioral health and primary care go down to 12 years old. By any chance, um, excuse me, but just a question. Um, does our Hayward Wellness Center, Hayward Wellness, does that approach a medical home model? That's that's the closest that we have, yes. Okay. Um, having been there, and I'm not just boasting because it's Southern Alameda County for everybody that wants to go visit, um, it's an awesome facility. Um, if that doesn't come close to being the ideal medical home, I don't know what does. Now, do we have a psychiatric uh, component on site there yes, as well? Yes, we do. Yeah. We do. There's okay. a consultant who goes there right okay. on a regular schedule basis. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It That really turned out very nicely. Actually, we had a consultant going there on Saturdays uh, mm -hmm. most recently. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how many more of those can we get? <laughs> <laughs> Moving right along. What was that budget question? <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to uh, a couple more slides to to, uh, to present to you. One is our, our early approaches to population health and behavioral health, uh, and this goes to the concern related to uh, the volume of folks we're seeing in PES. We reached out to behavioral health care services, uh, we, again county mental health, and we asked them who are our high utilizers. Then we uh, worked with with the staff, the clinical staff that actually works in PE in psychiatric emergency services PES, and uh, had them clinically uh, and socially categorize the needs of those identified consumers. And some of the categories we we identified were those who were seeking services in psych emergency services, primarily for food and shelter. And then a group of folks who were it was primarily substance abuse because, and we know we know a lot of the folks that, that these are folks that have presented at least four times in the past year, those folks who are struggling in the community because they have a hard time connecting with their behavioral health care service teams. That's another category of folks. And then those folks who are are 
even though they come to us fairly frequently, there are some significant social and wraparound services that they need uh, and they have a hard time accessing. So we, we have about six different categories that we've, we've plugged these folks into to see how we can partner best with the county in, in meeting their needs rather than having them use PES as, as almost like a, a psychiatric primary care facility. So, so this is underway. Uh, we've identified the high utilizers and now we're working with BHCS to identify the actual plans. Right. So, so these are like your priority areas yes. right now, like as you're working towards yes. a fully integrated system, yes. like what are the first things we need to do, like what, what comes first. So would number three, because what I had spoken about, like we see this integrated thing as being having primary care in the frontier of the whole integrated system, mm -hmm. but does three does then imply that the social services is yes. part of that, right? Yes. So that's, that's exactly it. That, that community bit, that uh, the, the social services you bet. part is this where would you be can get a lot of the connections. How this would look like in, in PES, for example, would be a county person right there with transportation available willing to transport a person to supportive housing or to a crisis residential services, uh, uh, call them CSUs, a crisis, crisis services uh, unit or a home. Well, ideally, it would be... At discharge, that would include. Or those are the ones that yes. are sending, or right? supporting them right at discharge. That's correct, mm -hmm. as well. All right, and then. I'm sorry. Would you talk a little bit about the practical approach on how you're going to get the data and the information and the sources for those pieces of information? You know, so far, and and this has been a great learning, but it, it's at a very, very high level. Mm -hmm. And so I'm interested in how you, how we roll this out in the practical. Right. So what, what are the sources of measurement, the data that you collect, where does that come from? Um, and sure. could you, could you walk me through that? Uh, sure. It's uh much of this is tied to our 1115 waiver and prime application. Each project has metrics that we that are very specific outcome metrics that we uh, that we're that we are tied to, and the dollars are tied to. Uh, examples will be rehospitalization rates, for example, uh, the use of a screening tool, the follow-up after use of a screening tool. Those are those. Mm -hmm. are, thank you, but those are specific things to measure. Mm -hmm. Where, where does that information come from? Okay, and and uh, where it comes from is through our electronic health record. Next Gen is a piece where it comes from. Eye to eye is another. Uh, our Sorian financial information is another database it comes okay, from. That, that's internal. No, no, and the county also has a database that will that we work with as well. Okay, yeah. we'll be able to track yes. patients across. The Correct. Country. Exactly. Um, not for this, I don't think, but, but yeah. Uh, so for the waiver, one of the things Guy, Guy mentioned earlier um, is actually here we do have um, 
um, fairly robust use of screening tools for um, uh, substance abuse as well as uh, uh, mental health uh, uh, conditions. And the, the utilization of it and the types of tools actually vary uh, uh, right now. And we, so part of this effort is to standardize what that tool is. Another thing that varies is whether or not that data is being captured electronically uh, versus sort of a manual th uh, tool where it may live in a clinic or live in a part of the organization that everyone doesn't see so that we can actually collect it in a uh, consistent fashion and report on it in an aggregate manner. So part of the effort that supports the work that we're going to do is building the ability uh, uh, within our own infrastructure, so our different EHR systems, to standardize the tool, to do the training for the providers on actually administering the tool, to be able to aggregately, aggregately or in an aggregate fashion collect the data that says you're actually completing the tool, and then utilization uh, patterns around the, is that resulting in treatment? So it's getting to those initial data uh, uh, points that, we, uh, that Joe was talking about on a national uh, level. Or is it resulting in treatment? And then for a discrete population, and we may look at something that's sort of a chronic, a, a very high chronic condition within our organization, like, say, for example, diabetes. For patients who have diabetes, is that is the linkage between if those patients also have a substance abuse or a, uh, a behavioral health condition, uh, is it resulting in a change in their care delivery pattern? Like, are they having less uh, hospitalizations related to an exacerbation of their medical condition because their behavioral health needs are now being met as well? So all of those things sort of are ways in which the waiver ties the sort of uh, high aspirational goal of reducing or changing the way we provide care, reducing the cost of care, improving the health of the population to actual metrics that we have to report, um, uh, at least as a public health system um, related to that particular population that we serve. So I'm not sure if that fully addresses your question, but those are those are some of the granular aspects of it, and correct me if any, any of that. Exactly. And, and each each project that we have has anywhere from half a dozen to 15 to 17 metrics that we have to report on that we're pulling from our electronic uh, both internal as well as external uh, systems databases we have a team that's dedicated to just this right now Correct. developing the, the you know the data pools do we do anything with cal and the, the all their departments that collect data i i, I suppose he, here's what prompted my question mm -hmm. is um on, on Monday, I spent about 90 minutes at the um, Family Health Center on Oakland in, you know, that deals with um, family abuse. And, and this is a huge building. Mm -hmm. And they must have had 30 different programs, all, I mean, all kinds of different programs in this facility. And they seemed, as I'm looking at it, knowing some of them, that there's a whole lot of duplication of services across the board. Nobody, one, one room didn't talk to this room. I mean, I'm seeing all of this stuff, and I'm wondering how one pulls this information together to get some kind of accurate piece so that you can, in fact, build programs. Uh, I'm So help me. Is that possible? I, I know I'm not making, am I making sense or not? Yeah, yeah. I, just, I, I think I, what you're talking, well, globally, what, what I think I hear you saying is you're, you're referencing sort of the fragmentation of the delivery system. Yes, and so, in Alameda County. You know, right. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm focused on just our, 
incredible fragmentation. Sure. Right. So how does our system that is pretty robust start pulling those pieces in? It, is there a way in which to do that? And if you say no, I understand. We can't do it without the county as a partner. Correct. And that's critical. So it's, that's, that's why uh, so, I... Go ahead, yeah. No, I, I agree. Uh, that one, one part of the waiver, so different than Prime and what we've been talking about uh, as one of the projects, another part of the waiver is something that's called a whole person care uh, Person, did I say the right? Whole person care pilot, and that pilot uh, similarly. There's some a lot of overlap between various waiver initiatives, but that particular pilot looks at how do you take a population of patients um, or uh, members of the community uh, who may be um, um, high risk in terms of their you know uh, current health status or health presentation, as well as high costs in terms of the way in which they engage various parts of the delivery system uh, and create a different care delivery model that's integrated and partners with other individuals to bend the curve on the uh, utilization and cost, but also ultimately to improve the health status and the healthcare delivery for those individuals. Um, as you might imagine, as complicated as our systems are, everyone else has their own sort of degree of complexity and, 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 and minutia as well. And these things, because we're all trying to work on this and not just stand in place, they don't always go together. We all have different governance. We all have different finance streams, we all have different sort of missions uh, that are connected but not always completely overlap. In the case of the whole person care pilot, the county, um, because of the fact that it has to integrate, has to be the lead agency. So whereas this is, the prime, prime is about specifically a public safety net delivery system, so it's us, it's San Francisco General, it's Santa Clara, it's Contra Costa, as a delivery enterprise, the whole person care is you know, a county-based uh, entity that's working with not just the designated public hospital, but other parts of the uh, delivery network. So that's one way in which we're doing it. But we are also, we talk to um, uh, very regularly uh, our partners and other parts of the system, uh, uh, the delivery system, and say, here are the things that we are doing and what, what is driving our um, um, desire or uh, impetus to do them, and what are you doing that may be a different sort of uh, uh, a driver or motivation that's overlapping with what we're doing, and are there ways in which we can partner again to make sure that there is uh, some degree of consistency around it? But you know, it's a moving target. Thank you. So Isn't doesn't oh. Doesn't the whole concept of the health home get at this, though? So, I mean, instead of looking at our systems, communicating with other systems, the better job we do with the patient feeling comfortable always coming through one door that we're providing, whether it's Hayward Wellness or Eastmont, uh, you know, that, that their, whatever their need is being met right there, you know, whether they have to be referred out or not. But, you know, isn't that how we we avoid that duplication and we make sure that the, all the needs are being met. I mean, isn't that why we're moving to this whole population-based system? Yeah, uh, it does. I think uh, there is clarity uh, greater, the goal, the goal is to get greater clarity around uh, what, um, what aspect of a person's care are you responsible for. And the goal is to find for everyone, every patient who needs care, um, uh, some entity who, who is looking at the overall picture. 
and some entity who's taking that and designing a delivery system, whether they provide it themselves or they uh, um, uh, contract with someone else to uh, provide it, somebody who's actually looking at the totality of that. So, so for example, the, the uh, CHCN and all of the alliance clinics are capitated for their lives, and they actually have to look at, depending on you know, certain nuances, they have to look at all the different elements of care that patients are receiving, whether they're in their door or not. Uh, for us, we're in a fee-for-service model currently, and we have to look at this. We look at it from the perspective of you know, the obligation for healthcare providers to do what's in the best interest of the patient. Um, but from a sort of global financing perspective, um, other than initiatives like the waiver, uh, we're, we're, we provide whatever care a patient needs, irrespective of whether or not they could have gotten that care somewhere else, possibly did get the care somewhere else, it's fragmented in, in, in those ways. So as we move towards population health, it is let's define the unit universe of people that we're looking at in this holistic way. Let's get data that is uh, uh, informing and educating us on their care-seeking patterns, not just within our walls, but wherever they've been getting care, because now we'll see that. Uh, and then let's design a system around uh, being able to do that in a comprehensive way uh, that's more coordinated and um, even if they're bouncing in and out of different providers, that too is coordinated. It's by design versus by accident, as much as possible. Well, just looking at the slide, it seems to me that even if, even though there are two separate systems, and even though we are acute health care system, and the county is provide ha, has um, is getting reimbursed for behavioral health in a different manner, it, it, the last sentence on here, of course, is as we look at population health and behavioral health and we identify high utilizers, and we develop clinical and social support. The last part of this talks about the 90 people who use PES for shelter and food, and obviously we're not going to feed and, and house all those people, so we will rely on the county, it seems like, to partner with us to address the social and, and needs of those particular people, and that's population health and, and kind of the wraparound as, as I see it. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, this is prime, but we're, as we are kind of looking at the strategic plan and doing the different business units, so is the integration also going to work with like primary um, behavioral health specialty clinics? Um, our specialty services as well will feed into this because the folks who are coming into the specialty business units will come with comorbidities. So have, have making sure that it's social safety net, it's primary, it's specialty and its mental health all integrated, right? And we might not be, like you said, the organization, but making sure those touch points are there between the different business units as well, yeah. planning for it. The Behavioral Health Strategic Business Unit uh, is, is one of those I think, three business units that encompasses the entire system. So wherever the patient touches, whether it's post-acute, ambulatory, wherever they touch, it'll be, it'll be integrated, yeah. The um, the history see is um, is really kind of where I've been confused. Not so much. I mean, this prime project is great, and uh, but I don't know whether it's going to be the wave of the future or if it's a demonstration project. But what has historically been the case is kind of what you were saying, which is that there's the medical care and there's the behavioral health care, and when we had the authority created, we kept some of behavioral health, but not all of it. 
and the county has the other part, and those two funding streams don't mix very well, and so it's n it's never been as a primary care provider. It's never been. I've never had the sense that anybody in county land wanted to really help me take care of my behavioral health needing patients. Um, and we're really hoping that I would do the taking care of that. And then it, but from a sort of reimbursement standpoint, we were always advised don't put down depression or anxiety or any of those things as your primary diagnosis because you're a primary care provider, you can't get paid for that. Um, and so there's this very, all, I like the model of the prime thing, and I'm thinking this is, a, you know, that we can move in that direction in the future, but I have always been confused about how the struct, how it's structured in the county and what, who gets paid for what and, and why anybody set it up that way, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But um, as you pointed out, it's not integrated and I'm not sure we'll ever get there in the current structure, so. Yes, it's an interesting point. Um, um, I was just going to reference in um, in Los Angeles. Actually, uh, they. I mean, if you may know, they they are recently um, historically they were all together from a uh, medical uh, delivery, behavioral health, and public health, and then over time they sort of um, uh, splintered into three different uh, departments. And uh, in the last year, they have. Uh, recombined into what they're calling an agency model where all three are there and in this space of um, behavior. So so when they were separated, there were separate mental health clinics and, and then the delivery side had, uh, just like we do, um, uh, uh, medical services and inpatient and, uh, or PES and, and inpatient psychiatry, but uh, the outpatient stuff was d done by a different department. And sometimes those uh, departments or those uh, clinics were co-located on your campus or they were on a different campus that has some adjacency, but it was a different department within uh, the county. Uh, because of that sort of uh, path uh, that they uh, pursued, now that they are uh, back under one agency model, their way of looking at this behavioral health um, 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 primary care integration is this concept that's called no wrong door. So, so they're trying to introduce even more so, I think they had it in sort of um, uh, limited settings, but they're introducing more behavioral health uh, expertise into the primary care setting, and they're also doing the reverse. So, because they have this history and this full cadre of mental health clinics throughout the county, that they're now having to introduce uh, primary care providers there. And the notion was sometimes, because of based off of whatever your primary diagnosis is, uh, there are patients who feel more comfortable being in a mental health clinic setting than they do in a medical clinic where they may be uh, the minority or they may be an outlier. Similarly, uh, patients in a uh, primary care setting who have a mental health condition still because of social stigmas may not ever want to go to that uh, mental health provider that's a separate clinic because there's a, you know, there's a stigma attached to walking through that door. So, so if we can get the provider in that setting, you can get people care and, and not be encumbered by whatever sort of uh, uh, barriers that may, may exist. For us, uh, while I don't profess to know a lot about uh, the model of, of how the county provides on an ambulatory basis, um, 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 
behavioral health uh, services. What I do know is on a macro level that we have actually looked at the strategic plan that they're developing in concert uh, with our own and uh, had our leaders uh, get together and talk about how we might move in a direction that's complementary. Uh, and so we're, we're actually still looking through that, and, and the hope is certainly that we, we will get greater alignment, but we will make sure that your point, which I think is a, is a helpful one, that it, we get to that level of granularity. How will a primary care provider in our setting who needs uh, behavioral health for his or her patient get them to that setting um, um, beyond what we may be able to do within our own resources? Yeah. And right now the consulting psychiatrist is facilitating that. So if there's a recognition that the needs exceed, then he actually makes the connections. But is that because we have some funding through the prime initiative and that when No, this it's been going on for a couple of years. Okay. But right. Last slide here, talking about how some, there's a lot to integrating behavioral health throughout all systems. Uh, as many of you can surmise, a lot of folks with a primary psychiatric diagnosis are seeking their psychiatric primary care in emergency rooms. Uh, it's a national problem as well as a local problem. I did want to report out that the county is entering into a pilot program with St. Rose Hospital that we're very supportive of. And the idea is to provide those emergency room doctors at St. Rose the ability to discontinue a hold, a 5150 hold. Uh, and just FYI, the reason, the reason why it's called 5150, that's the actual number in the Welfare Institutions Code mm -hmm. that allows, uh, allows a provider uh, to, or a law enforcement officer to detain someone against their will in order, for, in order to receive a psychiatric evaluation. Uh, so we, in California, we call it a 5150. Let me just add yeah, quickly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The reason this is an issue is because currently only psychiatrists and psychologists can are are protected from a legal standpoint to drop a 5150. And so others can place it, but not drop it. I'm and sorry. our ED doctor. And our ED doctor. Mm -hmm. But again, that's the exception rather than the rule. So this is looking at broadening that pool of people who can actually drop a hold. Mm -hmm. what, it, what will it, I don't want to interrupt you. No, okay. uh, what it will, it will prevent is an individual who, let's, here's a, a particular example. Someone is intoxicated on the streets, brought in by the police to the emergency room at St. Rose on a 5150. That person has to be transferred to John George to be evaluated before that 5150 can be dropped. If it's 24 hours and it's an intoxicated person, the entire issue may have changed completely, not needing in any way to tie up the resources of PES. This will allow that emergency room doctor to discontinue that hold, and it's, I think it's some, some efficiencies for the system. In, in addition to that, uh, the, the pilot program, uh, when there is a consult needed and where there is no psychiatrist available in person, they are putting together a telepsychiatry program where they can actually use telepsychiatry to do a psychiatric consultation actually in St. Rose's ED. And this is, a, uh, this is not new, but it is expanding pretty rapidly, telepsychiatry. And so we're exploring, as part of our strategic business unit, uh, the use of telepsychiatry throughout our system to uh, extend uh, the ability of our psychiatrists to support uh, to support Alameda Hospital, San Leandro Hospital, uh, the floors here up at Highland, wherever we can, wherever we can have an influence. Um, I just like to follow up on this and on a comment by one of the public speakers earlier. So, at this point right now, other than this pilot program, if there is a 5150 at a hospital, um, say Alameda Hospital or Washington Hospital, can that what that is transported there, can it be remain there if there's no psychologist? 
excuse me, psychiatrist at the hospital? Is is there some method for hospitals uh, to retain that 5150 patient at that hospital for some period of time until there's availability or, or capacity at John George? They would have to keep the patient in the emergency room. There's no inpatient psychiatric treatment at those facilities. And it takes 72 hours for it to lapse on its own. If the patient needs to be admitted for medical care, then you can right. just let it lapse. Well, no, I think that's your there question. was a commenter oh, that sorry. said that, other, that hospitals should keep patients and not transfer them to John George until there's capacity, and I was just asking whether that's a possibility. It, it sounds from it's, this explanation and from your comments earlier as if without a psychiatrist at the other hospital in the emergency room or elsewhere in the hospital, it's not appropriate or even possibly legal to keep a 5150 patient at that site. You actually, well, you can, and it's a, and it's a part of our overflow plan. So in other words, when we have numbers that are so large, we will make calls to some of our medical emergency rooms and say, can you hold on to 5150 transfers for the next couple of hours so okay. that we can decompress? Okay. So yes, you, you can do that. The question is, is what at what consequence? Right. Uh, because now you're talking about a patient who's in great distress in a place without the expertise to care for it and invariably interfering with the throughput for other patients who are coming into that emergency room. So it's kind of a no-win for everybody in that circumstance. But, but, you know, there's another part to her question I think it's really important. You're talking about allowing physicians at St. Rose to lift the 5150 Correct. hold, thereby avoiding them being transferred to John George. Correct. That's right. So to your point, not the patient that's in distress and John George is full and they're waiting at, at what cost, but the patient who could be lifted That's right. to, to, to reduce the capacity problem at John George. We have that at St. Rose now, but do we have that at Highland, Alameda, San Leandro? And, and what percentage of the patients coming to PEC from other hospitals uh, are people that could have been released at the hospital of origin mm -hmm. like what what how many of those are, are part of the the, the the census well remember we've returned 75 percent of the people that come in to the community so exactly what component of that 75 percent maybe never needed to be there i don't know the answer to that when you, when you we say we you mean you. john when they come to john george, john george or, okay so what Joe's but, question about the emergency room. Joe, I mean, the, the answer is yes, we can release them here. Our ED docs are yes. allowed to um, drop at 5150. I don't believe it's true in any other ED, that's but it's coming at St. Rose. Rose. Mm -hmm. But that's the only hospital. Well, I really want to track that. I mean, knowing about this PEC crisis, I mean, you know, in terms of capacity, if 25% if of them should have never been sent there or, or not never but no, could have been addressed at the at the at the community hospital level it will have a very positive impact on us okay. for sure that's why we're very supportive of this pilot that's right <laughs> and i also know the pilot behavioral health is doing with the oakland police department has reduced the number of people uh being named 5150 and, and brought to John George yeah. because they have the clinician working with OPD doing crisis intervention in the street. I'd also be curious how that has impacted capacity uh, because that's just another pilot I'm aware of that's, that's probably about a year old right yeah. now. Um, so, Guy, if, oh, go ahead. So, I may go on a rant here. <laughs> <laughs> let me just let me okay. first ask okay. this question. 
How many of us have heard of the two dial two one one? How many of you have heard of them? A couple. Okay. So one of the things that we all have to understand about mental health issues is that there's nothing like having a job, having food to eat, having a house to live in, and knowing that your kids are safe for you not to go crazy. And, and what's amazing to me is I, I looked up our 211 uh, for Alameda County, and I'm looking at who's the local agency that manages that. Does everybody know what 211 is, by yeah. the way? Okay. It isn't. It's somebody called Eden I&R Inc. Okay. And I'm looking at their quick links. And we've got Alameda County Food Bank, we've got Housing Authority, we've got the Public Health Department, we've got Behavioral Health, yay, United Way. I don't see Alameda County Health. How is that possible? So we're in there. We're probably in there, but it's not one of the primary links. And all I'm trying to say is, I'm back to what Michelle brought up a little bit earlier. They claim to have 1,100 agencies that they are able to connect our community to. And I'm, I'm, I love what we're doing, I love this, and I think I'm going to the upstream social determinants of health here, that's my rant, because in public health, you know, we say, wow, there's a lot of people drowning in the river, why? You gotta go up and find out the bridge was broken or somebody's pushing them in. This opportunity here is fabulous, but, but I get kind of crazy just knowing how many different nonprofits are out there? How many different faith-based organizations are out there? How many different county agencies are out there that are doing work that would prevent some of our people from ever being in the position to need these services? And so even today's presentation, which I know what the focus was, I just want to challenge us. Can we, can we dial back and just say, are we going to also make sure that this coordinated care takes into account all of these other kinds of services that we should be tapping into? And it might not be us. It may be, I think this is typically coordinated by the United Way. I don't know if ours locally has them as the champion. But whoever the organizations are that are putting together these wonderful directories and resources, we, we should be having those folks come in every time we meet for an educational setting and just, just find out. So what are you hearing from our community? Where are the links between those agencies and our services? Well, are we able to connect the dots a little bit better? Because I don't want to duplicate services. I'm really concerned that sometimes our budgets just go haywire because we're not tapping into existing programs that are done beautifully by people out in the community and, and we just need to connect the dots with them. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. and I think and I think my question well, would question. be would be related to that. If, if Michelle asked about the implications in terms of IT and interoperable uh, to make this an integrated system. What kind of data sharing do we need and things? And my question was, 
are there workforce implications for the, for this thing that we are doing in terms of like how we have patient navigators and things yes. that help other ways again doing using what are some of the workforce implications so that we can catch people upstream the clinic is not always the place that we need to catch them right so again low tech low cost measures that might help not just for this but in the long run as well with our population health so any workforce uh, implications that are coming in as you're bubbling about this? Yeah, that, that would be our, our strategic business unit focusing on population health management. And we, and we had uh, quite, a, again, a robust discussion around uh, addressing social determinants of health as well. That's, that's going to be critical in assisting this population. Gentlemen, because I am the keeper of the of the meeting here. Uh, I just want to say that we're starting to run out of time. So did you did you have other things that you wanted to present to us? No, that was it, other than entertain questions, that which was, we've been okay. doing all along. Uh, do we have any other questions? Um, I just like, if you have any links, I would just ask that um, that you send, that you mentioned the um, Kaiser Family Foundation study and um, anything else that would Provide and also, I'd like to actually get a little bit more information about the prime, how the prime, um, the prime programs, the three programs, how how they will be affected and how um, they're, you know, what it means for our patients. Maybe just a summary of those three, the three prime programs for um, behavioral health. That'd be good. Well, there would be summaries of the entire program. So what we would yeah. do is give, give you a summary of prime whole person care and GPP, yeah? yeah. Behavioral health components. Yeah, you bet. That, that would be yeah, helpful. Yeah, I, I misunderstood. Yeah, I'll give you some additional links as well. Right. And, and, you know, today um, the meeting with the Ella, you know, we have that health committee meeting with um, usually um, Susan, our, our county our county administrator, and, and Del Vecchio and... And it's always centered around budget, basically. But in that conversation, we talked about this importance of what's happening throughout the county relative to behavioral health. And it is on the supervisor's agenda. They do recognize that, that this is, in fact, a serious issue throughout our county. And what we're trying to do now, or what they're trying to do, is to gather more and more data to see whether or not this is an uprise of issues relative to behavioral health, uh, particularly when you see the encampments throughout our county of displaced individuals. So um, it, this is on the, the radar of our, of our county supervisors, and it's not an issue that's being ignored. Okay, I'm going to move to the next item. Um, before we open public session again, and um, that is uh, Mr. DeVries, and I'm going to ask you, you have a report for our joint application? Please. I do have an oral report. You'll all see in front of you um, two pieces of paper that were left on your desk that I'm actually going to ask Susanna to also email. One is just an overview of the Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless program um, that I would, I would recommend you include if you forward the second uh, item to anyone, and that is a call for board members. As you may recall, uh, I'm part of the working group that includes uh, healthcare agency staff, 
Board of Trustees staff, County Council, Mike, and what we're basically doing um, is, is creating a governance model for healthcare for the homeless. Um, we have a draft ordinance. Um, the county will be creating a county commission or board, what will probably be called a board. Um, similar to any other county board that exists, uh, the, the, uh, they're created by ordinance, uh, passed by the Board of Supervisors. Um, the draft ordinance will be going to the health committee on May 16th. Um, it will be, um, uh, um, we will have an opportunity to look at the ordinance uh, and discuss it on the 26th of May. Uh, it really is just, our looking at it or discussion of it is really kind of just to uh, be aware of it. The ordinance uh, essentially D defines the duties and the, and the role of the governing board, uh, protects the county and, and, and AHS's interest in terms of stating that this board is overseeing the health care for the homeless program. It can't, you know, fire our CEO as one of its actions or anything crazy like that. Um, yeah, um, it's a little levity. Come on, folks. Uh, but, uh, 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 it, and... Um, uh, so it'll it'll get approved. It'll go to the full board of supervisors. Uh, just looking at my timeline, on the seventh um, of June will be the the board of supervisors' first reading of the ordinance for final passage on the fourteenth. What we'll, we will also submit are some draft bylaws uh, for the governing board, uh, for which we have not come up with a name yet. We're trying to come up with something relevant and catchy and not too difficult to spell. Um, and um, uh, those bylaws, as you may recall, can be changed by the board once it's approved, but um, certainly we want to have the bylaws start that makes sense. It'll be a nine-member board similar to ours. It'll have geographic distribution throughout the county, just as the Board of Supervisors is very sensitive to. Um, now, what I most important, uh, what we need right now, well, once once the ordinance goes through um, in July, the uh, um, it'll be submitted to HRSA um, in hopes of getting approval. You know, they, we've submitted the plan, uh, and then the the ordinance will be submitted, um, and then uh, hopefully by September have an applicant agreement, uh, and then by October this uh, JCAB, which is the joint, um, I can't even remember what JCAB. Think co-applicant board, which again we're going to come up with a better name, but JCAB uh, will will assume governance by October is the, is the goal. That's the timeline. Um, right now in May, um, we're looking for potential board members. So if you know someone who has done work in the healthcare uh, health in the field serving the homeless, um, not an AHS employee, not a county employee, not someone who actually has a contract with. Healthcare for the homeless, uh, but somebody who's very familiar and done advocacy or, or program work, is familiar with financing. Um, you know, it, it kind of, we kind of lay it out in here, but. Um, we, we want to get a robust group of folks to choose from. I've already reached out to a few folks and um, mostly have them shot me down because oh, they don't live in the county or they're too busy because they've got so many night meetings already. Um, so if you know anyone, um, submit them to Joel or David. Uh, you know, Again, their emails and phone numbers are at the bottom. And do it soon. Um, so uh, I know Susanna will email this out to you. Um, and that's, that's my update. Uh, Joe, are you are you going to have that ordinance? Are you asking to put that on the agenda for the our, yes the of the yes? Okay. It's just another update. I don't think Mike. I don't think we need to take an action at on the twenty sixth, but maybe just an, uh, I so want I want you to ha see the ordinance for a matter of public record, okay. and um, kind of let you know what happened at the at the board because uh, the board the health committee will take it up before our next meeting. 
uh, and they'll review the bylaws as well. So hopefully I can provide you the, the bylaws, the ordinance, and even a potential slate of candidates that are being considered. Just purely informational. Okay. Right, Mike, is that... I don't think there's an action item we need to take. And then it's going to the health committee, the the county health committee on the 26th. Uh, that it goes there on the 23rd. On the 16th. Uh, the 7th, it'll go to the full board of supervisors uh, of the 7th of June. And then the... Um, the you said the 16th. Something was happening the 16th. Oh, uh, oh, that's we're submitting the draft ordinance to the health committee. Okay. Yes, you're correct. Thank you. Okay. Um, and then, um, yeah, and then we'll review it, and then it'll go to the full board the first week of uh, June. Right. And then, yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. Um, thank you. That concludes the board's um, education and discussion today. So I'm going to reopen the public uh, comment section of our board meeting. And I, if it would really help if you are, when I call your name, if you're ready to to come to the microphone so we can use the best use of our time. So the first person will be Terry, uh, I think it's Daughtery, and then after that will be Carl Wright, and after that will be Mike King. Good evening, members of the Board of Trustees. My name is Terry Doherty, Manager of Occupational Therapy and Activity Therapy at John George Psychiatric Hospital. I am an employee of John George for 34 years. I'm reading a typed statement from an individual who is not able to be present this evening. This typed statement is from Elaine Friedrich, member, family member, and active member of the Alameda County Mental Health Board. When people talk about John George and the overcrowding that exists in PES, they tend to forget that John George PES cannot by law turn anyone away no matter how many people they already have. Let me put my glasses on, things are a little blurry. So they try to make the people who come in and have to stay, that have no place to sit or lie down, comfortable with pads, pillows, and blankets on the floor. However, that does not mean that they are not receiving medical treatment for their mental condition. People in PES are people in trauma. They will be in pain, mental and physical. They will scream for help and cannot always be provided. They may be hallucinating, paranoid, or frightened. I have been in PES with a relative and seen this many times. I also have seen this in skilled nursing homes with older adults calling for help. Their calling for help does not mean help is not being provided. Some judgment must be used when hearing these calls. An individual who has never been exposed to an individual having a mental episode, let alone a group of them in PES, is going to have a different reaction than a family member who has been in PES before and knows what it's like. For those who progress into beds at John George, they have been evaluated and are being treated using the current best practices in medical treatment. Many relatives want their loved ones to stay longer, but the hospital must release a patient when the doctor says they no longer meet criteria to be further treated or held. They cannot keep them longer by law. Behavioral health care services will be implementing new procedures where patients who are released can be connected to treatment services faster than previously. Patients will be offered support that was not available before. The Alameda Health System and Behavior Health Care Systems know that the current crisis needs to be improved and are taking current steps to improve it. Behavior Health Care Services is taking steps to try and decrease the number of people who enter in through the doors of PES by funding new and additional services, but these services will take time before the results show at PES doors. 
In the meantime, treatment at John George is still being provided by caring individuals who do their very best under very difficult circumstances. John George is an excellent hospital and has many caring staff. There are statistical readings that prove this and measures that show that John George has improved greatly over the years. Despite a current influx of patients in PES and an increased length of stay for patients in PES due to a reduction in lower level beds, quality care still exists in Alameda County at John George. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Strati. Mr. Wright? Uh, my name is Carl Wright. <clears throat> you know, um, when I was coming up, um, uh, there were families who were ashamed to admit that anyone in their family had a mental illness. So, like, treatment was not really an option for me. But for others, there is some hope. So I'm with an uh, organization now who is um, NAMI, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And I'm in two of their programs uh, serving the community. One is the MOD, which is the Mentor on Discharge. Uh, what that do, it entails that uh, when a patient uh, requests a mentor, uh, it gives them someone in the community to connect with. Uh, and it keeps their stay um, from the hospital longer. Uh, a way longer uh, than it normally would. Um, another program is the IOOV, which is the In Our Own Voice Experience. Uh, and I'm just going to get a quick uh, overview of that. Um, uh, in Our Own Voice began as a part of a movement within NAMI to further involve individuals in peer education about mental illness. In 1969, the grant from Eli Willie Lilly and Company NAMI produced the program's first edition, Living with Schizophrenia. The goal of Living with Schizophrenia was to provide people living with these serious illness an opportunity to talk safely about their experience to others with similar issues. As the program developed, the need for a broader focus became clear in 2000. Living with Schizophrenia was changed to Living with Schizophrenia and Mental Illness. In 2003, it was changed to In Our Own Voice. It's what I do now. Living with mental illness, um, the program recognizes potential to reduce stigma, expand uh, the general population it is now offered to a wide variety of audience. Um, recovery has a new face in life today due to the improvement of medications and treatment options. As a mental health consumer, it does not qualify me in affiliation with any doctor, psychiatrist, social worker, or case management. I said that to say this. Uh, there are times when I'm asked questions that I don't qualify to answer. Uh, as a matter of fact, I don't even give advice. But what I do is tell my story and hope that someone can relate to it. Um, as a mental health consumer, I now work with an organization and peers who recognize the potential to help reduce stigma. To me, recovery is individual. To me, success is reclaiming a good quality of life. But others may feel discouraged that they are not doing as well as others. For me, I feel that there's hope. Thanks. Thank you, Mr. Wright. And after, after Mr. King will be Abul Rahim and Joe Rose. Hi, my name is Michael King. I'm uh, in the Mentor on Discharge Program uh, for National Alliance of Mental Illness. This is a, an excellent program. I understand the concerns of many of the workers at John George. In fact, I also work for Bay Area Community Services, BACS, 
and I told my supervisor the day that I was coming here and hopefully speaking about the, uh, the peer mentor program. She said, oh, that's a bright spot for John George. And I said, yes, uh, I work with the mentor on discharge program, which she was aware of. But uh, I understand the concerns, but I also know that when I've gone to John George to visit uh, with my mentees or participants, the staff has been very cooperative and very uh, work well. I work well with the nursing staff and, and the social workers on connecting with my uh, participants. Some of my participants have been suicidal, and they've done an excellent job of uh, forewarning me about that or bring it to, uh, uh, may bring it to their attention. Uh, the peer mentor program has also been a success in that 70% of the participants in this program do not return, usually after their initial visit, about, about 0 0.70. So it's been a success. That's a bright spot for, the, for John George. Uh, John George, I mean, I've connected well, as I said before, with the uh, social workers, with the, uh, uh, the nursing staff, and uh, some of my participants have remarked when they've been released from John George that they've, uh, some have been released to programs such as Men of Valor in East Oakland. And they said, I want to go back to tell participants there that I've been, I've did well there. They're looking for housing and looking for employment, and they think it's an excellent program there. So they think they've been treated, they feel, they feel they've been treated well. And they feel that it's an excellent treatment facility. I know it's a tough job on, all the, on everybody there with the influx of members or participants or consumers on the mental health system. Someone, one of the board members remarked about that, about the, the, the ratio of uh, the, the, the workers or the mental health workers to the uh, consumers, mental health consumers. And we all know that mental health, uh, mental health is a crisis in this country. So I just want to say that I have a great deal of respect for the workers at John George. I understand their position as a union, and, and, but I'm also proud of the peer mentor program. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. King. So good afternoon, good evening. Um, my name is Abu Rahim. I am the coordinator of the Great Mentoring on Discharge Program. It really is a, a great program. Um, Maria made a comment about the CBOs in the community, and that really goes, hopefully that will help me make my point. This is an edited version of a comment that I made to the Board of Supervisors back in uh, November 2015. Um, I, and what I'm going to say here, you already know this, but I'm going to give you what you already know, and hopefully it will help me make my little point, because there's a point here that I'm very passionate about. Uh, John George remains the single most utilized point of entry into the, I'm sorry, into the county's mental health care system. And it is the service provider for 99% of all acute psychiatric emergencies, 24 hours a day, every day in Alameda County. The facility provides psychiatric emergency and acute care services to adults experiencing severe and disabling mental illness and treats all who seek care regardless of their economic or social status. These services are particularly focused on individuals who are dangerous to themselves or to others. Patient satisfaction scores at John George have ranked in, in the top half of psychiatric hospitals nationwide. And this contradicts the Alameda County Mental Health Board unfounded accusation in our yearly report. However, the Mental Health Board did forward a solution statement in which it presented to the Board of Supervisors in October 2015, and it reads, one solution to the overcrowding recently advanced by hospital administration is to put in place a more stringent triage system. Well, to my knowledge, uh, John George already have a stringent triage system. 
It is a system whereby walk-ins get first attention and ambulances are second. And there's a color-coded system to determine who gets attention next. To that end, any complaints against, listed against John George Hospital should be followed by a thoughtful and concerted solution. Uh, because the hospital does face an issue of capacity. In 1892, when John George opened, Alameda County's population was 1. million. Currently, it is now over 1.5, and the number of beds has not changed. It is still 69 beds uh, at a 23% increase in overall population. The National Association of State Mental Health Directors released some stats that if taken to optimize the capacity at John George, it would have 352 beds. Of course, we have less than 70. The goal of the acute psychiatric hospital is to stabilize and help clients reestablish themselves in the community as quickly as possible. We should have conceded by now that helping a person get through a crisis does not negate hospitalization, perhaps even in the future. Mm -hmm. Because these clients are discharged back, this is my point from you, uh, thanks for even bringing the CBO issue up. Uh, because these, cl these clients are discharged back into the community where they are encountered their psychosis in the first place. And it is and always will remain a community concern that John George alone cannot resolve. So my recommendation is, Advocate for a more collaborative system. You guys talked about that earlier. Uh, good luck. Um, <coughs> um, uh, communi and community inclusion, inclusion with community input that will go beyond documenting a problem, but to offer thoughtful and concerted solutions with the aim of empowering those who suffer from serious and persistent mental illness. And yes, we should advocate for transparency, as the complaints were this earlier, and accountability, and not be fearful that such a request be viewed as confrontational. Out of time. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Reagan. President Lawrence, uh, distinguished uh, trustees, uh, my name is Joe Rose. I'm president of uh, NAMI Alameda County South. That's the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And um, I've spoken to you before about our Mentor on Discharge program. And this evening I would like to put into context uh, our program with the census in John George Psychiatric uh, uh, in their PES or, uh, or psychiatric emergency area. The issue uh, PES uh, clinicians and staff have brought before you are understandable. With their concern for patient care along with senior management, uh, what are some of the possible solutions? Uh, one would be to cap uh, admissions to PES, like was suggested, to 50 people as uh, proposed by uh, PES staff. But then the question is, where does number 51 go? Uh, do they go back to the street without treatment? Or do they go to jail for treatment, if any, which has been the case sometimes in Santa Clara County? Uh, to re number two, reduce the need for initial hospital interventions by way of their uh, prevention early intervention programs. Results that I've seen is the percentage of patients in locked psychiatric facilities has increased. This in spite of behavioral health care services, prevention, early intervention funded programs. Millions of uh, dollars have been spent by behavioral health care services since the Mental Health Services Act's funding, funding approved over 10 years ago and effective in July of 2005. So uh, from my experience... PES programs, prevention early invention programs, don't seem to be reducing the number of initial hospitalizations. Three, addressing rehospitalizations. NAMI Alameda County South Mentor Program has shown to reduce significantly rehospitalizations, and this took 
pressure, this can take pressure off of PES at John George. However, for over five years, Behavioral Healthcare Services has refused to fund this program. With new management at Behavioral Healthcare Services, this may be changing, but yet, that is yet to be seen. Even with funding, there may be a significant amount of time to staff up to a point where we could see a significant drop in demand for PES and psychiatric beds at John George. So, what I, uh, last but not inclusive, a footprint increase in beds for psychiatric patients at, in Alameda County. But again, if funded, how long would that take to wrap, uh, ramp up? So, in conclusion, I want to say that our mentor on discharge program is not a complete uh, solution to the problem, but it is a part of a solution to a problem. And the people that you've just heard here are part of that solution. And I want to thank uh, the senior management at John George for helping create and promoting that program. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Rose. And we have one last speaker, uh, Kathleen Clannon. Doctor. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I wanted to say a couple of things um, following up on Mr. Finley's description of the whole person care pilot that we're working on, the county's um, portion of the waiver. Um, we will be primarily focusing on four, trying to do four things, getting better at data sharing, getting better at care coordination, linking housing in particular, but housing and food, um, and uh, understanding where the gaps are in our system, what it is that we are offering and what we are not. And in order to do that, one of the things that we're going to be spending a chunk of the resources on, we're, we're debating and exploring, um, will be on the data sharing piece. I wanted to be sure to say something about it because we all see every day suffering people in front of us who need services, and it will be difficult to spend resources on something that seems very bloodless and um, remote from the suffering that people have in front of us. But if we don't do that, we will be stuck in the situation that we are now. We are able now, with great difficulty and a lot of time and effort, to do large data system matches that produce the kind of data that you just saw, where data from the Alliance, data from Health Pack, data from Behavioral Health, data from AHS's EHR come together, and we get a list. Here's the people who are in all those systems and something about them. To move on, to be able to do something more with that, we're ha we have the level of for care coordination where we want to be able to do something like that on a monthly basis so we can see where was Kathleen seen in the past month so we can find her, so we can find out if she made it to her psychiatric appointment or not. So care coordination, much less care transitions, which is where if I've been in the hospital, we want on very short notice for information about what happened to get to my primary care provider or my psychiatrist. So all those levels for large, for planning purposes, we need to do those data matches. For care coordination, we need to do regular sharing. And for care transitions, we need to be able to do it very quickly. That, we're hoping we'll be able to get, to get a system together that will allow us to do that. You, what, what you will hear about is the spend on that, but we're bringing resources to the table to be able to do it. And the other thing is the balancing of the importance of coordinating care against the importance of people's privacy 
and how the information is used is how it is treated um, respectfully and how we make sure that when we do this data sharing, it actually results in something better for the person whose data are being, are being shared. So that, that will be the thing that we will work on together, that we'll have to work on together and that I, I almost guarantee will come, will come to at some point or many points in the future. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Board, is there any, any last comments? If not, then I'm going to adjourn the meeting. Thank you. Thank you.